Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have the news with me, Brittany Clinton-Sam, as always, and we also have DeWanda Wise, the new star of the Netflix series, She's Gotta Have It, the remake by Spike Lee. And we also have Shannon Minter and Jennifer Levi to talk to us about the litigation to fight the trans ban in the military. Jam-packed episode. Now, before we jump in, I'll just share a quote that has meant a lot to me. It says, if it's meant for you, you won't have to beg for it. You will never have to sacrifice your dignity for your destiny. And it's by Chelsea's Porter. What I love about this is that sometimes we have to remember that we don't have to force this work. That like we should operate in the direction of our passions and our interests and our joy. And that it might not always be easy, but you shouldn't have to beg for the work that is your life's work. So when I think about this work on justice and equity, you know, I've said it many times before, but find like the issues that you really care about and then take the first step and keep taking the next step and the next step until you find your place. Let's go. And now the news with me, Brittany Pagnett, the former member of the Ferguson Commission appointed by President Obama to the Task Force on 21st Century Policing and now a leader in public education. We also have Clint Smith III, our resident academic, and Samuel Sinyangwe, our resident data scientist. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Samsway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Hi, hi, hi. This is DeRay at D-R-E-Y on Twitter. So many of us celebrated a holiday this past week with our friends and family. Uh, I often refer to it simply as a holiday these days because I recognize, as do we all here on the pod, that Thanksgiving is a, a holiday fraught with a very violent history that is often a day of sadness for many Native Americans and people indigenous to this country. And so I want to ask you all how your holiday was. But before we do that, we certainly want to acknowledge um, that this was not a day of celebration for everyone. Uh, a friend of mine sent me a really great website called native-land.ca, where you can actually put in your address or your county. And uh, it helped me see where I was having that meeting with my friends and family, uh, and I was having it on Iroquois and Miami land in Missouri. Uh, and so I certainly want to acknowledge the, the peoples who were here before the rest of us um, on whose land we celebrated um, and, and enjoyed time with our friends and family um, and certainly want to be thankful to those activists and leaders continually in the Native community that continue to enlighten all of us um, and push us ever more toward justice. But I was certainly thankful to be able to sit with my family this week, as I know you all were, and I would love to hear how that went. I was with my sister and my niece and nephew, Sayla and Isaac, and they are amazing and they were great. So it was, it was good to be Uncle Dre for Thanksgiving. So I'm out in California uh, with my in-laws and my mother-in-law is Nigerian. And so over the last several years, we've had uh, I've been introduced to Nigerian Thanksgivings, which uh, include jollof rice and suya and uh, igusi soup and oxtail and goat meat and all of these incredible Nigerian delicacies that I was not hip to and certainly not 
in the context of Thanksgiving. So it's really flipped. I already had a sort of non-traditional Thanksgiving because I'm from New Orleans. And so we had jambalaya, uh, gumbo, etouffee, and, and all this sort of stuff. But but now I have a super unorthodox um, Thanksgiving. Or maybe it is, or maybe we need to reframe it, right? Because this is a land of immigrants, as they say. And so uh, it was just cool to have, you know, a Thanksgiving that was not the traditional turkey, mashed potatoes, and whatnot. But but what's interesting, I, I tweeted about it, um, and apparently there's like a very intense uh, Jolof rivalry, especially between Nigerian folks and Ghanaian folks. And I did a poll, which was a huge mistake, like one of the Twitter polls, and, and then Sierra Leoneans came through, Liberians, uh, Senegalese folks, and everybody was very much uh, offended or convinced that they had the best jollof. And my mentions were just awry for uh, many days of people arguing whether or not their jollof was better. But they were also very happy that my mother-in-law has brought me into the world of um, understanding how magical jollof is. If you have not had jollof, Google it. Um, it is incredible. You should cook it. And and it was just, it was funny. And it was amazing. And this was Baby Jay's first Thanksgiving. And uh had a lot to be grateful for this year. Yeah, Ariel and I got back actually on a flight um, on Thanksgiving. And so we got back around seven o'clock at night and then uh, proceeded to make an incredible sort of traditional Thanksgiving meal. Uh, for those who don't know, Ariel's an incredible chef and I'm I'm sort of good at cooking like three or four things. <laughs> so, And to be clear to everybody, so there's no confusion, both my wife and Sam's partner are named Ariel so that people don't I don't want people to be like, oh, snap. <laughs> Sam was out here you know, I, was, I was just with kicking it with Clint's, Clint's wife. With Clint's wife for oh, Thanksgiving, man. you know. That I don't know if wild. you knew, Clint. No, no drama <laughs> on the pod today. Pod save the people, love and hip-hop edition. Basically. Okay, so my piece of news is a new report that came out, a new FBI uniform crime report on hate crimes uh, in 2016 was recently published. Uh, And an article in CNN uh, goes over sort of some of their findings, uh, most notably that hate crimes increased in 2016. uh, And this was, uh, it increased to an extent not seen in recent history. Uh, And so just to go into some of the numbers, there was about a 5% increase in reported hate crimes uh, to this particular uh, database. And there were 6,121 hate crimes reported in 2016 compared to 5,850 uh, in 2015. Uh, but what's really interesting when you dig into the data uh, is that you find that that increase actually occurred. So much of the increase occurred in the fourth quarter of the year around the election. Uh, and so there's a chart in this article, which is just really fascinating, which shows that historically uh, hate crimes would decline in the fourth quarter of the year. Uh, But in 2016, and only in 2016, there was this spike in hate crimes coinciding with uh, the final months of the election and then the months after. Um, And so this sort of builds on an increasing body of evidence that, in fact, um, there has been this spice, something that we've heard all all around. We've heard from many different groups. We've seen many incidents on TV. um, But this is just sort of the data that that helps to quantify what's happening. Um, And it's clear that Trump's election and, uh, you know, what that represented for many people um, actually contributed to this spike of hate crime. So a report that actually came out from the Southern Poverty Law Center looked at these two months 
following the election, and they found a spike in hate crimes. So what you find is that 37% of these incidents actually included a Trump-related reference, which indicates that actually Trump and his presidency and the, and the election itself um, contributed to a a wave of violence and a spike in hate crimes in this country. Um, and again, the FBI hasn't released data for this year, um, but it will be uh, fascinating to see how that trend line uh, changes, whether it increases or sort of falls back down to the baseline uh, in into this year as well. You know, sadly, I don't think any of you who are listening to this um, are surprised by this news. I'm very sure that none of us are. Uh, This actually, when I was reading this, Sam, it brought to mind the recent New York Times profile of the white supremacist Tony Hovater. Hovater? I'm not sure. Anyway, um, what struck me, though, was that the tone of the profile seemed to be really emblematic of this prevailing social confusion that we really have to correct. And it's the idea that the people who are capable of hate and bigotry look a certain way. It's like, it's as if, uh, you know, we expect every single white supremacist to show up in a hood or everyone who's capable of killing a trans woman to drive a pickup truck and live in the South, you know, or, or every person who could spray paint a slur on a mosque to have a sleeve of tattoos and a shaved head. We often joke, right, about the the white supremacist uniform that we saw on practically everyone in Charlottesville. But when some of those folks were exposed online, there were people who were surprised that they worked with these folks, right? That these people were working us in them at a call center or a restaurant because they didn't look the part. Um, And we just seem totally baffled when bigots and supremacists show up like everyday people. But the truth is, violent bigotry is a tumor that grows in every corner of our country. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that New York Times article, Brittany. I've been thinking about that a lot. And and it's interesting, right? Because as someone, so I'm someone who works with people uh, who have been sentenced to life without parole. That is the focus of my research. And oftentimes these folks have done really horrific and egregious things. Uh, and, I, and I'm not here to necessarily dispute that. And and I am also someone who does the work of attempting to uh, make sure that we know that these folks are are full people, right? And so I am I am empathetic to the instinct to to humanize and to create uh, a full picture of someone's personhood, even when they do egregious things. Um, but but I th- so I think there can there can be value in attempting to understand people who do terrible things, but if that is done in a way that is both ahistorical and also unwilling to wrestle with both the moral and material implications of their violence, then the piece or the story is inevitably going to fail. You know, one, words have consequences. And in particular, words coming from somebody like a presidential nominee or a president-elect um, you know, have such tremendous consequences and it forces us to sort of ask questions like, you know, what does it mean for a president to cause a crime wave, you know, and in many ways, like that's what you're seeing. Like you can trace this spike in crime directly to the president's actions and during the campaign and afterwards. Um, And like, what does accountability look like in that sense? Like what, you know, what is the role of um, folks who are fighting this, who are now being defunded um, under this administration? How do we continue to support those organizations to combat hate crimes uh, and hate writ large, and then how do we hold folks accountable? Not only the president, but you know, as you said, Clint, folks in the media as well, uh, to actually starting to address this issue, um, so that this doesn't get much, much worse. 
And I think it's important to also note just one last thing is that the New York's time piece is emblematic of this idea that uh, certain people are worthy of empathy and certain people aren't, right? And so always be mindful and always take into account and always try to notice who media outlets or who pundits or who governments uh, deem worthy of empathy and deem worthy of, of humanization and take note of who are deemed as not being worthy of those same things. So recently, Vox ran an interview um, with a UVA law professor and an author named Brandon Garrett about the dramatic decline of the use of the death penalty in America, um, which, of course, in and of itself is good news. Um, In the 90s, the U.S. carried out about 300 to 350 death sentences a year. Last year in 2016, the number was down nearly 90 percent to 31 death sentences. Um, But his book and his interview really explored the why and the how of that and what lessons there are to learn. So he essentially says that multiple factors have made it harder and more expensive for states to prosecute death penalty cases. Um, But he says that the most important lesson is really in how that happened, that it wasn't a change led by policymakers or by Washington elites, but by hardworking defense lawyers on the ground. And that's actually who we owe this really dramatic shift in the criminal justice system to. So essentially, he helps us reframe the death penalty and, and says that the evidence is crystal clear that the death penalty is not at all an effective deterrent, which means that it's not actually a matter of justice, but it's really just a matter of vengeance. Um, It aligns with the idea that we often discuss on the pod that the criminal justice system is not truly interested in rehabilitation, and therefore we can just throw people away without regret or reflection. Um, And and as we discussed in the immigration case a few uh, weeks ago, this news of this decline really comes from better lawyering and better resources for for those lawyers. So the question that leaves me with, though, is will states possess the political and moral will to make sure that those lawyers have the training, support, and resources that they need to be more effective at their jobs, which really would represent a shift in the mindset around criminal justice that people um, that the right that 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 most people can actually be re- rehabilitated um, and come through this system better than when they started out. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about the death penalty uh, pretty extensively, as we should. Um, and, and this was a really informative interview, and, and I'm really interested in this professor's book. Um, and it, the, just the thing that sticks out to me about the death penalty, clearly the research is demonstrating that it's not a deterrent. Clearly, it is emblematic of how our criminal justice system is not interested or committed to rehabilitation um, and instead is committed to retribution. All of these things are true, and we, the list goes on and on. But I keep coming back to the fact that four percent of those who are killed in capital punishment are innocent, and that was reflected again in this interview, and that's been reflected in prior research that's been done. But, but that is that is just I, I think people just need to sit with that. Like, imagine you are in a room of twenty five people, and one of those people is just killed and is murdered by the state. Who, and they were completely innocent. And that is what our system does. And it is, it is astonishing that one out of 25 people who are killed in the United States by the death penalty are proven to have been innocent. You, we should stop doing the death penalty if that number were one out of 500. And we should stop doing the death penalty for a, a myriad of moral reasons. But 
but one out of 25 is is it's horrific i mean i don't i don't really don't even have the words to to express how unsettled i am by uh, by that reality and yet that is where we are um and i'm hopeful that we will continue to move to a point where um our supreme court or the federal government um recognizes that there is no utility and there's no morality in the death penalty and that we move past it in in totality and i think you know from an advocacy point of view in terms of you know fighting against this one of the things that's important to know is that the death penalty is actually banned in 18 states uh, and it is there are only a handful of counties that are actually responsible for a, a disproportionate share of um, executions and so in that in that sense, it means that there are a very small gr- number of jurisdictions that account for so much of this issue um, that you know changing the prosecutors, uh, the, the elected DA in those areas can have a huge impact in terms of addressing the death penalty or even state legislation uh, in states like Texas and Florida, uh, which account for so many uh, executions. Uh, to actually address that issue can go a long way to ending it uh, nationwide. Yeah, I just think too about how important it is that we tell the right story publicly because so many people do think that it's a result of like some sweeping law shifts or, or that matter. But Brittany, when you tell this story of it was defense attorneys or when we tell the story about what innocence looks like is that it helps reframe this issue for people. Clint, when I think about the idea of so many people being innocent, it's like, what is the goal here? And like, we don't tell the story either enough of the fact that like, you know, mass incarceration hasn't decreased crime. Uh, the death penalty hasn't had any demonstrable impact on crime at all. I think that we often don't tell our stories well about how we got here, what the victories actually look like and what the work looked like uh, because we are so focused on doing the work that the storytelling comes afterwards. And I'm more and more mindful of how when we don't tell this story correctly, people tell this story for us and they often get it wrong. I just want to close by saying I know it can often seem as though the everyday actions, the work we're doing in our careers, the tiny tasks we take on every single day toward justice aren't really making a dent and aren't moving us forward in the ways that we want. But this is good news about the decline of the death penalty. I hope to see that number come to zero very soon. But it is a reminder that you don't have to be the most powerful person in the room. You don't have to have the biggest or most important title. You don't have to have the biggest office in order to affect change. Shout out to all of these defense lawyers and the people working in those offices who have made this decline in the death penalty a reality. And it's a reminder to all of us to keep on working at it, no matter how long it takes. So oftentimes when we think about climate change, uh, we are thinking of the rising oceans. We are thinking of uh, icebergs melting. We are thinking of uh, certain types of wildlife becoming um, extinct. Uh, We are thinking about, you know, more hurricanes and all of these different things. And these things are true. There was a recent piece in The Guardian that talks about the impact that climate change has on child brides throughout the world. And, And this really struck me because that is not a connection that I would intuitively make. Uh, But what the piece goes on to outline is, is that the increasingly uh, desperate environmental conditions uh, throughout Africa and throughout the Middle East um, in many countries are creating scenarios in which families are becoming increasingly desperate, especially families who have lived off the land. And when that land is either 
um, ruined by floodwater from rising rivers and and lakes and other bodies of water that um, that makes the the land something that is not, no longer fertile, um, or when there or conversely when it is too uh, the land is too dry. And this struck me for a range of reasons, but like it, intuitively, it's not a connection that I would make. But part of what this piece outlines is that so many of the families in uh, particular in this piece they're talking about in uh, several countries in in Africa are are experiencing drought that or or conversely or are experiencing uh, the flooding of land that they otherwise would use to um, cultivate their crops and both eat off of and used to sell to feed their families that that land is no longer uh, fertile. And so what's happened is that so many of these families have begun to uh, sell the young girls in their family essentially into marriage um, at an earlier and an earlier and earlier and earlier age. And so, you know, you have girls as young as 13 or 14, in some cases 12, uh, who are given to um, older men and they are either paid a dowry, which means they are given uh, some semblance, you know, either uh, crops or cows or money um, in exchange for the girl. Um, or even if they, the person who is uh, the girl is being married to does not have the money to give to them, um, it is um, one less mouth to feed for these families. And so I think we tend to think of climate change in this very insular way, but I think that this piece really helped me remember that the impact of uh, the changing climate is having very real impacts on people's lives um, across the world. And it's most often and disproportionately affecting um, the most desperate people. You know, there was one quote in the article that really struck me when they were discussing the fact that there are no kind of fully detailed figures as to just how many child brides could be subjected to this, essentially because no one has previously thought to connect the issue of child brides and child marriages to climate change and that no one has ever asked the right questions until now. That really struck me because I, like you, Clint, had never asked myself this question, had never connected those dots. Once the connection was made for me, it made very perfect, very sad sense. Um, But it really struck me as a woman thinking about how desperate I have been and how desperate so many of us have been in America to finally be having an open conversation about sexual harassment, assault, and abuse, and how long that took, and how so many stories of of women around the world are still not being acknowledged, even in the midst of this much more open conversation. The truth is, anywhere in the world, as dangerous as it already can be to be a young woman, the issue is always exacerbated when poverty comes into the picture and becomes a factor. Clint, uh, this article really reminds me of another article that I read um, actually a, a couple of days ago, uh, which was about climate gentrification. Um, and so I said, you know, I was like, climate gentrification, I've never heard that. Um, and so apparently as sort of wealthier uh, folks, mostly white folks in places like uh, Miami Beach uh, are being displaced by rising sea levels, by, you know, the hurricanes and all of these effects of climate change, um, they are now moving into uh, low-income communities of color, like in Little Haiti and Miami and other places, um, displacing folks. Uh, and, it, and it just goes to show how far-reaching climate change as an issue is to impact so many other issues that we wouldn't think about, um, you know, that aren't even being measured, uh, as you said, Brittany. Uh, 
and how it just really exacerbates uh, existing problems on every axis and how we have to be vigilant in addressing climate change and also in talking about climate change uh, in saying that it's about more than, you know, just the climate changing or it getting a little hotter or, you know, sea levels rising. It is actually an exacerbation of so many other different uh, issues uh, that impact people and predominantly that impact communities of color and low-income communities, both uh, in the U.S. and abroad. Yeah, the only thing I'll add is that, you know, it's important to remember that the some of the places that the article references have already tried to stop like child marriages by law and it just isn't catching hold so this isn't like a you know fix climate change fix everything or that climate change is the only lever but it is a reminder that like there are so many unintended consequences of of the policies that we either support or don't support. And I had never thought about relationship between climate change and child marriages at all. Like that is like, you know, I, I want to talk to the researcher to just figure out like how this even like this, this idea to research this came to play because, uh, you know, the study suggested there might be like a three time increase, like increase of three times as many marriages over the next uh, set of years because of climate change. And that is just so wild. So it makes me think about what other relationships and correlations we aren't looking at because we haven't asked the right question. And part of what this also makes me think about, I think many folks saw the reporting that CNN did um, where they found that there was uh slave auctioning that was happening in Libya um, where where immigrants um, or refugees rather uh, who were trying to find work uh, oftentimes trying to smuggle themselves to Europe um, on the way ended up being smuggled into unwittingly and unwillingly and against their will um, into being human trafficked by uh, by folks in in Libya and so I think that that was incredibly unsettling. If you've not seen the video, uh, we'll put it on the on the site. But um, it it was a very real and uh, astonishing example of what um, modern day human trafficking looks like, and and that is something that we can't disentangle from the the things that are being talked about in this piece with regard to climate change, because the reason that so many folks in different parts of Africa are attempting to smuggle themselves knowing the chances of, of death, um, but doing it anyway to Europe is because the circumstances of their lives like are becoming increasingly more desperate and more difficult because so much of the land that they lived off of is no longer, uh, again, is no longer fertile and is not something that they can live off of. So, so many young men are attempting to escape uh, and, and on the way to escaping, often find themselves in um, the most precarious of circumstances and um, certainly finding yourself being being auctioned off um, as a human being is uh, about as precarious and, and horrific as it can get. Well, my news is about the courts. I'm just fascinated by this is that Trump will add twice as many lifetime members to the federal courts in the next 12 months as President Obama named in eight years. And that is just so wild to me that that sometime in the next year, one in eight cases filed in federal court will be heard by a judge picked by Trump. And many of the judges will likely be serving up until uh, 2050. And it's because the Republicans have a whole new plan to uh, change the judiciary. So there, he inherited 103 judicial vacancies. And in the first nine months of Obama's tenure, Obama nominated 20 judges to the federal trial and appellate courts in the first nine months of 
um, Trump's tenure, he nominated 58 and they are racing to get them on the court. So that is that sort of staggering because we always think about the courts as like a as a place that we can go when the other two branches of the government fail or there needs to be an arbiter. But he is changing them in such a substantial way. And, and perhaps the most interesting and damaging thing is that there's a proposal that was actually written by the Federalist Society that is planning to pack the federal courts with a minimum of 260, but up to over 400 newly created judicial positions. So under their plan, the 228-year federal judiciary would increase in a single year by 30 to 50%. And what's what's noticeable about this is that during the Obama administration, Chief Justice Roberts on the Chief Justice Roberts on the Supreme Court asked for more judges to be created because they were just a backlog and the GOP, the Congress, um, wouldn't do it. And now suddenly the Trump's president, there's there's like a mad dash to just change the judiciary. And this is stuff that doesn't make the nightly news, but has huge consequences on how we think about justice, especially how we think about uh, checks and balances. As a reminder to everyone, uh, the Federalist Society was started, I want to say in the 1980s, but you'll have to check me on that, um, by a group of conservative and libertarian law school students. Among those founders is uh, one of the pod's faves, Antonin Scalia, who perhaps is best known for, you know, standing in the way of like civil and human rights for marginalized people for decades. Um, the Federalist Society is so conservative that upon his nomination for chief justice, John Roberts initially denied ever being associated with them because he knew it would threaten his chances at winning his nomination. Um, and so the tricky part here is that the Federalist Society in their portion of the plan, as you said, said, DeRay, is not just to fill existing vacancies with extreme uh, conservatives, but to create new judicial posts to really tip the scales. As I was reading it, it immediately brought to mind the Three-Fifths Compromise, which, of course, happened at one of the constitutional conventions to allow uh, Southern states to count enslaved people as three-fifths of a human being, which, besides being inhumane, um, was rooted in clear political ideology. It was all about making sure that Southern states had an outsized had outsized power um, in the House of Representatives for at least the next 10 years. So it was based 100% in the promotion of the South's political strategy. And that's exactly what this is. It is targeted. It is strategic. It is undercover. This is precisely how this administration has been performing and operating since it came into office uh, to ensure their power outlasts them, to ensure their agenda outlasts them. At the end of the day, this is what systemic oppression looks like. And that's why we can't just fight Trump. We have to fight past Trump. Yeah. So if you wanted to know why so many of the Republicans in Congress are being uh, such cowards, then you have to look no further than the courts. I think they don't want anything to distract from or take away from or hinder their ability to fill the courts again and fill the courts with people who are serving lifetime appointments like these are not people who will who can be removed when we move past this trumpian stage of our our uh political moment like these are folks who are going to serve for the rest of their lives until they either pass away or retire on these courts and and this is a this is a really huge thing and again this is we say it over and over and over again, but the implications of elections are far, far beyond simply the the figurehead that we put in office. And, you know, we have to make sure that we are taking into account 
the the full scope of implications of each election um, and and that we are doing the work of of articulating that to as many people as possible. And I think that's, you know, something that we didn't do a good enough job of in 2016. And, and I hope that people are becoming more and more cognizant of of all of this as we move towards 2018. And, um, you know, I feel like on every podcast from now on, we should say, make sure everybody you know is registered to vote. But the not, you know, and 2018 isn't going to remove the president, but it can um, serve as catalyst to to ensuring that we put a some sort of halt to these really, really, really dangerous um, judges who are being placed on the courts. Yeah, absolutely, Clinton. I mean, 2018, you know, if the Senate flips Democratic, then that can really um, prevent a lot of these folks from getting confirmed. And so it's a huge opportunity to actually stop this uh, in a year. Um, the other piece that's interesting about this is that you have not only are these sort of pro-Trump pro-Trump justices, um, but 74% of the judicial nominees that Trump has made have been white men. Uh, And so you're seeing how white supremacy is working, not only in the ways in which it prevented and minimized uh, the ability of Obama to shape the judiciary and, you know, in doing so shaping how justice is interpreted and um, implemented in this country, but you're also seeing how the system is sort of trying to change all the rules, you know, especially if they adopt this federalist uh, idea in order to give Trump extra power uh, to shape the way that justice is interpreted in this country. Um, and, in, in, and when you look at the ways in which Trump is doing that, it is very clear that it is a generational uh, strategy of essentially, you know, blocking all, blocking all types of, uh, social justice and and other important uh, judicial wins from from taking place over the next you know forty to fifty years when you think about um, you know some of these younger justices who are going to be there uh, for that long and so you know we have to this has to be part of you know what we're thinking about at the ballot box because this is ultimately um, what got decided in 2016 uh, and we can't let that happen again. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More politics. The people's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Ask Sherwin-Williams during the March-Spring sale, March 15th through the 25th, and get 35% off paints and stains with prices starting at $28.92. 
That means 35% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 35% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. And now my conversation with Shannon Minter and Jennifer Levi, who are both lawyers working to stop the proposed trans ban that has been put into effect by Trump with regard to the military. Now, since we recorded this conversation, just in the last 24, 48 hours, some things have changed. Two different courts have issued rulings stating that the Obama-era policies in favor of trans-military recruitment and retention must be adhered to. And the lawyers from GLAD and the NCLR, as well as lots of private firms in the ACLU, have been working hard to push back against the ban. The cases were in Maryland and D.C. federal court. So pay attention to the conversation that we're having on the podcast today and make sure that you follow this in real time because it's changing every day. Shannon and Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. I'm excited to have this conversation. Thanks, DeRay. We're both really excited to be on. Yeah, so appreciate the coverage. Now, both of you are lawyers who are helping to lead the fight against the transgender service ban that Trump has put with regard to the military. Can you start by telling us how you got to be lawyers working in this work? Uh, Sure. Um, uh, This is Shannon. Um, So uh, Jennifer and I both um, are, are transgender, and we... I've both been practicing law for, I don't know, a few decades now, a couple decades at least, and have both ended up being very active in the transgender rights movement, both, both you know, litigating cases and developing policy and drafting and trying to pass anti-discrimination legislation, other kind of laws that protect transgender people. So we're part of a relatively small but growing network of transgender attorneys who are able to to do that kind of work. And of course, we work with a much larger network of transgender advocates and and allies. Um, and Jennifer, you can explain this for yourself, of course, but we both work for one of the uh, four major LGBT litigation organizations in the country. I work for the National Center for Lesbian Rights, and Jennifer can tell us about GLAD more in a little bit um, here. But uh, you know, we were just really concerned when uh, President Trump started tweeting about banning transgender people from the military, and especially in light of all the 
litigation experience that Jennifer and I have litigating these issues and thinking about these issues about transgender people, we we reached out to one another and, and both agreed that if it, the minute it looked like those tweets were going to get turned into a serious policy that we wanted to be ready to bring a case. And so that's when we started lining up plaintiffs and getting ourselves ready to file and, and ended up filing, you know, the first case challenging the, the military ban. But Jennifer, you should talk about your, your background. Yeah, sure. Um, I work for an organization called GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. We're known as GLAD. And we're a nonprofit law firm whose work primarily has focused on the New England states. And, uh, but we've increasingly done work of national scope because of the ways in which the communities that we represent have been targeted. I direct the Transgender Rights Project. And as Shannon said, I've been doing this work for nearly two decades. And when uh, President Trump tweeted out the policy that transgender people would be excluded from the military, it really pulled together um, in you know one issue the kind of work and the effort that both Shannon and I have been working on separately and together for our professional careers. And so there was a real sense of urgency that we had to bring these uh, cases that, in which we've been involved. For people that aren't familiar with the issue right now, how would you describe it? And, and what are the suite of cases that are that are in progress as we challenge, as you challenge the Trump administration? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that people may not know or understand. And that is that transgender people have been serving in the military for a very long time and have been doing so at extraordinarily high levels of competency. And the military has has already undergone a process of comprehensive evaluation of what the impact would be on allowing transgender people to serve openly. And it was over a year ago today, over a year ago from this time when the military adopted a policy that authorizes transgender people to serve openly. And so when President Trump changed that policy it was a dramatic reversal of military policy, and it ignored the conclusions that the military itself had already drawn about the um, impact of transgender people being able to serve. The, the second thing to make clear is that the military policy has already changed and, is, and now prohibits transgender people from serving. And transgender people will begin to face separation or discharge from the military in March of 2018. That date is set. The policy has already been changed. And so there's a dramatic impact on transgender service members right now, meaning that they will be subject to discharge in March. And transgender people are right now prohibited from enlisting. And that's due to the change that the the Trump administration has adopted. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't mind just tagging on that just for a little bit, because I will say, Duray, one of the things that's been so frustrating about litigating this case, is, and we've seen President Trump do this in other areas as well, especially with rescinding the policy protecting DREAMers when he rescinded the DACA policy, he, he does, he has this pattern where he will issue a terrible decision that has an incredibly harmful impact on people. And in this case, it was reinstating this categorical ban on transgender service members, even though the military itself just studied this issue and decided, uh, like in June of 2016, that there was absolutely no reason not to let transgender people serve. 
So he reverses that. He reinstates the ban. And then immediately the Department of Justice and others start spinning the issue and being like, oh, well, who knows? We don't know what we might end up doing. Uh, You know, maybe we'll kick people out. Maybe we won't. But meantime, the president has issued a very clear directive with a date certain, like Jennifer said. We know exactly when the ban goes back into effect on March 23rd. But it it is very successful at creating confusion. And we had to deal with not only, like, you know, finding plaintiffs and putting our case together, but then we, you know, had to spend time explaining to people, even in our own movement, in our own community, like, yeah, you you all, something bad is happening, and it's happening right now. There is no uncertainty. We know exactly what's going to happen, and if we don't file a lawsuit to stop it, people are going to be kicked out of the military. But, you know, they are really, really good at doing something bad and then creating all muddying the waters and creating all this confusion and acting like nothing bad is really happening. Wow. I didn't know anything had actually changed in practice already. I thought that these are upcoming changes. I know you touched on this already, but can you just repeat like what has changed for active trans members of the military right now? So right now, the military is prohibited from taking steps against them while they're serving. But that is only because of the fact that the federal district court in Washington, D.C., on October 30th, 30th issued an order halting the ban that this administration announced. So that has been an incredibly important order that halts what this administration has done, which is to reinstate a policy that excludes transgender people from serving in the military. And, and Dorea might help because I, you know, it, this is, she's been really confusing to a lot of people. And again, that's been half our battle is to get people to recognize th- what's happening now. I mean, it, it, it's helpful a little bit to just back it up and, and recognize that the, the military studied this issue up one side and down the other. I mean, they really did an incredibly extensive examination of transgender people in the military. Then Secretary Carter, uh, under the pr- previous administration, issued, you know, announced that the military changed its policy in June 2016, and they said, we know we have transgender people in the military. You can all come out, identify yourselves. Nothing bad will happen. And then they were going to also start letting transgender people enlist in the military, and that was all set to take effect. The the enlistment part was going to take effect in Ju- on July 1st, 2017. Then we had the presidential election. We have a new Secretary of Defense. Secretary of Defense had already extended that uh, deadline for letting transgender people exist to January 1st of this year. So that was the status quo before President Trump did anything. Before he did anything, the policy was you're transgender in the military. That's great. You can openly identify yourself. You can serve on equal terms. And starting on January 1st, transgender people who want to enlist in the military can do so openly as a transgender person. And then what President Trump did is issue an order saying, oh, no, I don't like any of this. We are going back to the old policy of categorically banning people starting on March 23rd. 
that old ban is back into effect, and we're never going to let transgender people enlist. Like, he extended that indefinitely. So what started happening immediately as soon as he did that is transgender people who were already in the military, they they were having problems re-enlisting. We have a bunch of people who had medical care denied. Uh, we had a bunch of people who were like, all of a sudden, you know, I'm not getting uh, the training I want. I was going to be deployed. I'm not going to be deployed anymore. I mean, basically, everyone all around them, including their commanding officers, knew that they were not going to be in the military much longer. And so, naturally, they started getting treated very differently and, and much worse. And so, that's when we jumped in. We filed our lawsuit. We've been able to deal with most of those immediate problems, including about denial of medical care, and to get a court order saying, oh, no, you cannot, you cannot enforce this ban on March 23rd, and on January 1st, transgender people are going to be able to enroll in the military. So, I mean, that's kind of the lay of the land right now. The ban on enlistment that uh, was extended and is currently still in place has had an immediate impact on uh, a number of people, including two of our plaintiffs in our Washington, D.C. case. So we represent a young man who started at the University of New Haven just this past September, and he uh, intended to enroll in the ROTC program. He signed up for ROTC housing as well as a class that's offered and um, physical training with ROTC. And the day he went... The first day he went to participate in ROTC programming, he was told that he would not be allowed to participate because he's transgender. So that you know, prohibition against transgender people enlisting has had an, an immediate um, and direct impact on a number of transgender people, including in that ROTC context. I'm learning so much. Now, 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 what can people do about it? Is there anything we can do about it or do we just need to wait for the courts? No, don't wait. <laughs> no, we no, we really need people to be engaged. And I mean, thank you, DeRay, for doing this podcast to help us like let people know what's going on, because we desperately need for people to be paying attention to this issue. You know, follow the cases. Of course, that's really helpful. But uh, just like back in the marriage equality fight, I mean, we need people who have transgender family members or friends or who are just allies to be speaking up about this issue every chance you get and let people know that uh, you support transgender people and let your both your state and federal elected representatives know that you think transgender people should be able to serve on equal terms in the military what I mean, what the public knows and thinks about this issue is going to have a huge impact on how it eventually uh, turns out, including that, I mean, it's important. I mean, the courts, of course, are going to rule based on the Constitution, but it's very helpful for the courts to know that the public is with us and that the public generally supports equal treatment for transgender people. So the more attention and visibility and support we get, from the community and the progressive community and the and broader, the better. Yeah, and I just want to add that, you know, this is a president that seems to really test the winds and take a measurement of the way in which the political winds are blowing. And I am hopeful that this administration could even walk back this ban and see that, you know, the military is opposed to it. People are opposed to it. It's not a political win for them. So, really getting people engaged, talking to others about why they think it's so wrong, 
Um, you know, people who are impacted personally telling their stories is all super important. Um, and they well impact the, the, the course of this work. And there are a lot of people in this moment who are losing hope, who feel like there is no light on the other side of the tunnel. Uh, what do you say to those people? You know, I get a tremendous amount of uh, hope and optimism from the ways in which I see this administration impacting young people's engagement with politics and with policy and with ideas. And there's a way in which I, mean, I would never have picked this fight at all. Um, but I am so inspired by young people who I talk to who are engaged and energized and enthusiastic about the idea of making political change, making long-lasting, sustained political change. And I think, you know, seeing the, the ways in which people have mobilized, bringing together marches, reaching out across issues that people might not have understood the connection across, uh, you know, across the whole range of, of of issues really gives me hope and optimism in these really dark times. Where can people go to find out more information about uh, both of you, the organization that you work for? Where can people go to find more information? Yeah, so I would invite people for uh, who are interested in learning more about Plaid and our work to take a look at our website, which is www.plaid.org, and that's glad.org. Yeah, and our website is uh, www.nclrights.org. And where can people go to find either of you? Are you both on Twitter? Yes, we both are on Twitter. Um, <laughs> my, my Twitter handle is, and I, lo- and I love following you on Twitter, Dre, and I love the podcast. This is super, super cool being able to talk to you. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. You're a huge inspiration to me, actually. Uh, but my Twitter handle is um, ShannonMentor5. Yeah, and I want to echo my thanks, too. And my Twitter handle is JenniferLevi1. Well, I consider you both friends of the pod. Uh, Excited to have you and I learned so much. And we look forward to bringing you back to keep us updated. Thank you so much, really. appreciate your covering this important issue and really all the issues that you you focus on. So, So appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, DeRay. Big time. Thank you. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Beyonce, Katanji Brown-Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, The Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go. 
and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. And now my conversation with DeWanda Wise, the star of the new Netflix series, She's Gotta Have It. DeWanda, thanks so much for joining us on Pod Save the People. Thanks for having me. If my memory serves me correct, you're from Baltimore, right? I am from Baltimore. I grew up on Rolling Road in Woodlawn. Um, and my dad presently lives in Catonsville, so Baltimore County, um, that side. But yeah, I grew up in Baltimore and I went to school in Howard County. You know, it's such a small world. I actually went to Catonsville Middle and High School. Oh, did you? <laughs> you know, I have a similar story. We lived in the city proper. And then for middle and high school, my father moved us so we could go to different schools and we moved to Kingsville. Maybe I live around the corner from your dad. Probably. Most likely. They have been there my entire life. I'd love to start with learning more about your journey to being an actress. How did that happen for you? Yeah, I, so it was, you know, it was in high school. Like I have a lot of friends who um, were really interested in acting a lot earlier than I was. Um, but I kind of, really, it was this place, um, for me to put a lot of stuff, actually, it's, it's, it's pretty relevant to growing up in Baltimore, but, you know, I, I'm from the city and I went to school in the county and I had a lot of like, I was a deep empath. Um, and I had a lot of anger. I had a lot of like, pain and angst and um, a lot of stuff that I was just processing and trying to figure out. Um, And so I started taking drama class when I was 15 years old. And my um, drama teacher really, really, I mean, like a 90s movie, um, encouraged it. And, you know, he like, (laughs) he gave me detention for being late to class, which was his way of basically forcing me to audition for the Music Man, um, our spring musical at the time. And it was, I mean, it was kind of like, it was really love at first sight. It was something that clicked and it made sense. And I realized I could also um, have the kind of freedom and spontaneity and flexibility because I like to quit stuff, you know? (laughs) So it was, um, it was, it just became very clear and it brought, it brought a lot of clarity to my life. Now you've been in such a range of roles from underground, precious, now she's got to have it. How do you choose your roles? Like what's that process like for you? Um, I think, well, what's interesting is, you know, I'm almost like, I'm almost at this like place where I can just read something and say, oh, this is interesting to me. Yeah, like I want it and I don't have to audition for it anymore. Um, But I've always, you know, I've always auditioned for things. And um, what's, what's like the truth is I, I just think there's something in the DNA of an actor um, and not to get too like ephemeral or pretentious about um, how it works, but projects really do choose you. I mean, you know, I, I audition for the gamut of things. There have been plenty of things that I've auditioned for that you know, would just be fun to do, you know, that, that really don't have any, you know, deeper social ramifications other than 
just good old fashioned and very necessary entertainment. And I just, I just never got <laughs> those projects. Like all of a sudden I'm like, you know, I'm like playing a uh, inmate firefighter and firelight. And it's just, I don't know. Um, there's just something, you know, not only inherently political in me because I'm like a black woman, but also something, I think there's something extra, um, some extra heart or enthusiasm or love of the thing that just draws me to subjects um, that I find compelling. So I wish there were some formula. I mean, I will say I do say no a lot. Like I've always said no a lot because there's a lot that I just don't think is good. I love it. I love it. (laughs) There's a lot that I just do not think is good, but I'm like, that's okay. And they're like, but Dewanda, you know, you, you don't have, you're still working at the, at your restaurant job. And I'm like, that's okay. I love my restaurant job. I'll wait. You're like, I love my restaurant job. That is so real. You talked about this idea of the inherent political nature of your role as an actress, as a black woman. Uh And I want to know, what is it like to be an actress in this moment? Does it make you think differently about your work, about your role? Does it do anything to the way that you think about your role or your work? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I'm definitely among the scores of black girls who are like, welcome to the club. You know, I'm I'm definitely, you know, I've been going to a lot of these, a lot of events and especially in the wake of um, these conversations about um, sexual harassment, assault, violation. Um, It's, you know, this past year overall, both kind of in politics and, you know, in our culture, the culture of Hollywood, the culture of America, it's, it has, it's been like just like watching a sea of people wake up, you know? Um, I will say when I first read the pilot for Shots Fired, you know, which is about police brutality, I was like, what? We're put, they're doing this for TV? You know, I'm so accustomed to working in independent film. I'm so used to telling the stories that I want to tell and um, tackling topics in a way um, where people can enter into the lives and have empathy for people that they wouldn't normally come across on a daily basis. So I just, I think it's interesting because there are more, I'm obviously seeing more work that actually exists um, that I find pretty daring and cutting edge and the opportunities have changed a lot, you know, um, and where those opportunities are has yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very, it's just so clear. I mean, it's clear from, you know, the year I'm having that there's actual work that exists um, and that's being greenlit and all that. But in terms of, you know, being like Hollywood proper and the entire community, it's pretty wild because I do. I just feel like I'm watching people um, wake up and, you know, I am open for sure to um, facilitating the movement going forward and like, trying to be compassionate about, you know, the place that everyone's at um, in their process of, you know, waking up to the real world. It has been interesting to see people sort of realize all at once that the world has not been a great place for so many people for so long. They're like, wow, it's so bad. And we're like, well, it's been bad for a lot of people for a long time. Well, I just, okay. Did you know that you wanted this role in She's Gotta Have It when you when you first saw the script? Was it a process? Was it love at first sight? How'd that work? Oh, how'd it come to be? Um, it's, 
you know, I, I, I saw it in my early twenties. I saw it when I was, um, still, uh, in college and it struck me in, it struck me in many ways. Um, but for the most part, it was just about her like strength of, of mind. Right. And with this process, what happened was, <laughs> what happened was, um, I got the audition. I saw it come across and I did my little nerdy Dewanda research and kind of figured out who was in the writer's room. I had just come out of two projects. And if I, in one, I learned how important, how important TV, how important it is to know who's in your TV's writer room. You don't, you like, you can't really know. It's not something, you know, I feel like this whole last year I had far more information than actors mostly receive before they sign up for a show for seven years of their life, you know, but for me specifically with she's got to have it, I needed to know that there were women in the writer's room. I mean, it's very simple. It's, you know, it's a woman's story. Um, and I thought, okay, it was one of the few times where I felt like if you're going to do an update, you know, this makes sense. I was like, Oh, this one makes sense as an update. It was, already ahead of its time, you know, there's a ton to say and explore um, about what it means to be a woman figuring her life out. Um, but it, it's paramount um, that the voices who are writing for NOLA and writing for the other women in the series are, you know, some prolific, um, skilled, <laughs> um, brilliant minds. Uh, it, it, it just, it means everything and it's always meant everything. You know, I'm the script for me, you know, coming from a theater background, like it's, if it's not on the page, it, it's not there. Like it doesn't exist. There's nothing an actor can do to bring anything to life that doesn't exist. Um, so yeah, so I, you know, it was, it was super duper important. Um, and Spike has been super incredibly humble about it. And, you know, acknowledged that when She's Gotta Have It came out in 86, you know, it was completely from a male gaze. It was like, I mean, clearly I wrote it, I directed it, I edited it, you know, entirely from a male gaze. And it's 2017, like that's, you know, if we're talking our generation, it's not an option, you know? And so then I was like, yes, I'll audition for it. <laughs> you know, it's it's that. I was like, oh, I do was in the writing room. I was like, oh yeah, you know, I'll audition for it then. Um and it if I'm if I'm enthused, if I'm like if I choose to um go in for something, I'm like I'm a two thousand percenter, right? I like I put all my like my mind just starts to go and and I submitted this, uh, I was still working on Underground at the time, so I submitted this self-tape, and I do not recommend this. If you're an actor listening to this, I do not recommend this. It's really ridiculous. Don't do this. Um, but I decided, you know, Nola has these, <laughs> she has these direct address to camera uh, monologues. And so I was like, okay, we're talking 2017. You know, I was, I was planning on taping the day after um, I'd gotten it, you know, I'd memorized and done all, all my homework and stuff. So my, like, my hair was in um, Bantu knots so I could, like, have a cute twist out, um, which you see her twist out on the show. So my, so my hair was in Bantu knots, um, you know, had my septum ring in still. Um, and I taped the direct address 
monologue, the first scene, like as a selfie, you know, like as a whatever, Facebook Live, Instagram Live. Um, I just taped it as a selfie by the light, you know, in my bed, like laying in my bed. Um, And that was my way of saying, this is who NOLA is in 2016, you know? I love it. That's dope. Just raw, very stripped down, honest, no makeup. And so much of that kind of depth and um, insight and simplicity is is what you see in the show. Um, so, yeah, that was it. I submitted my audition tape. Um, I had a director session with Spike, and he was pretty clear because <laughs> he is not a man who is lacking in clarity <laughs> um, or purpose by any means. You know, he was just like, he was like, do you want to do this? Um, and so, yeah, we went, you know, we went from there. Now, what do you hope people get out of She's Gotta Have It? It's a remake. People feel like they know this story. Uh, so what do you what do you want people to walk away with with this 10 episode Netflix series of such an iconic film? Right. I have a very simple agenda and it's the same agenda I've always had with all my work, which is I want people to see themselves reflected and you can see yourself in, you know, in NOLA, you can see yourself in any of our friends, you can see yourself in um, any of the guys. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, that's my only, the guys, my only like very simple agenda. Like I, you know, there were things that spoke to me that I thought were compelling um, thematically in the show. I love that we now include a kind of village of women, uh, her friends, her mother, her therapist, her, um, the teacher, uh, the principal who runs, um, you know, the teaching artist program that she's a part of. I love that we tackle body image issues. I love that we're talking gentrification. So there's a ton of things thematically, topically that, you know, I found interesting and compelling, but, you know, when it comes to what I want or hope an audience member takes away. Um, I never limit it. You know, people always come up to me with something that they caught or that they, that like move them in whatever way or that they thought was hilarious. Um, and I'm always kind of like surprised and open and interested in, you know, what people pick, pick up. Cause you know, audiences are brilliant. And um, I love working on projects where the creators know that. This is a moment where a lot of people are losing hope, where they feel like it's just not going to get better or it's not getting better. So where do you go in the tough days or the days when the hope wanes uh, to find that that spirit? Part of being a like melancholy kid um, was definitely suffering from depression. And it takes a lot. It takes a lot to keep me buoyant. Um, and it's a communal effort, honestly. Um, so now I've gotten to a a space where I can actually like my husband, my mom used to do this thing where, you know, they knew that it wasn't their sole responsibility to like pull me out. Right. And so they would reach out to my friends for me. Um, and I'm so thankful that I, (laughs) that I've always had people who were like, yeah, you know, I know I'm not enough. So. Um, let me reach out to the people who can speak into your life. Um, uh, I'm Christian, so I've always had this idea, this sense, this knowledge, this truth that like, this isn't it. (laughs) Like, this isn't, 
this isn't even, you know, a hair um, in the grand scheme and scale of what, you know, of what life is. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's just, there's a lot. This list, D-Ray, this list is long. Like, <laughs> It's helpful to talk about that, you know, because people think that they're alone and they're not alone. Yeah, for sure. They're not. They're not. I mean, and I think my greatest, in my in my greatest weakness, my greatest strength has been reaching out. Always. It's always been reaching out. I mean, any time that I have struggled in any way financially, you know, I, I've just had to whether it's like, I mean, it's been strangers, um, whether it's an organization, you know, I work with NAMI Communications, their mental health organization. Um, and they have a brilliant model because they empower local communities. It's not this thing where it's like this top down kind of, you know, format or reform. It's very specific um, community to community. Um, but yeah, because, you know, it is, it's hard. Sometimes you feel like you can't go to your family. Or sometimes a family is the problem. <laughs> um, and, you know, I do. I <laughs> I mean, so I just, I, I do. I really encourage people to like, you know, jump online and find, um, like look up the thing, um, whatever's going on and, and find your tribe. You know, at this point in my life, I'm thankful. I have really, really great friends um, and they cover me and, you know, they encourage me and we're, we can be very transparent about where we're at. But if you feel like you don't have that community, you know, I just say, start building it. Um, like start really, really building it. Um, and yeah, that's my offering. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Pot to the People. I consider your friend of the pot and can't wait to see you and she's got to have it. Thank you. I appreciate your work for sure. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Posse of the People. Make sure that you rate it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And I will see you back next week. Tell a friend to listen to. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.